<clears throat> well, if you haven't been with us, we've been in a series in the uh, book of 1 Peter, and uh, Peter is writing his letter to exiles, and uh, that's us as Christians. We are people living in the world, but the wor- world is not our home. Um, our citizenship, our values, our identity is from somewhere else. The question that Peter is asking is, how does the church engage the culture? So we're living in the world. How do we relate to the world? How do we relate as Christians to the culture? How do we engage? And uh, just by way of review, Peter said that there are two main dangers to the way we engage as Christians. And uh, one danger is withdrawal. And we've been talking about that. This is the idea that we retreat from the world. We... we, uh, go into our own Christian little bubble. We kind of let the world does what it's going to do. And we just kind of turn inward and do our own thing. Peter says, no, I want you to engage in things like politics and racism and with non-believers. I want you to be connected to this world. The second danger we're going to talk about today, which is uh, almost the exact opposite. And what Peter is going to warn about today is the danger of assimilation. And this is the danger, the very subtle danger of becoming like the world. So we are so engaged with the world that we've become like them. Uh, we're no different. We, were, we relate to sex, money, and power the same way they do. Uh, we, our practices, our, our uh, things that we do on a daily basis, essentially look exactly the way the world looks. And this is a very real danger because what Peter believes is that Christians have the most influence on the world when we are the most distinct from the world. Folks, unless we are different, unless we are absolutely counter to the way the world does things, unless we are an alternative way of life, we're going to lose our impact. We're going to lose our influence. And this is a very real danger. And it's a danger that's subtle. The idea of assimilation is something that happens to Christians almost without us even thinking about it. The easiest thing for us to do is to blend in. It happens without us even realizing that we're doing it. So, uh, for example, I, I've lived in Batesville here for about eight years now, and I'm, I'm, I'm discovering that every year I become a little bit more Batesvillian. Um, I, I become a little bit more Southern. And the thing is, it's happening to me without me even realizing it. It's like the way I talk, uh, the way I do things, I'm just becoming a Southerner. And uh, it was funny that the other, we have this little uh, app on our phone. It's called Marco Polo. Some of you may have this as well. And it's a way for me to be connected to my family at home in California. And so we do videos. And I decided to do a video of me down at the bayou fishing to show my family how, you know, Arkansan I've become. And so I was down there at the bayou and I have my fishing pole in the screen, you know, and showing them my bait hanging off my, my line. And the other fishermen around me were like rolling their eyes, like, who is this dork down here? He doesn't know what he's doing. But I was there talking to my family. I'm going fishing, guys. Look what I'm going to do. And then at the end of the video, I literally said, all right, y'all, I'm going to go get me a fish. And then that, I was like, I, I have assimilated I've become a Southerner without me even realizing it. And this is the way assimilation happens. I mean, it happens to you. You you don't even know that you're doing it. It's the easiest thing to do. It is so easy to be molded into the ethical image of our culture. I relate to what uh, John Tyson said. He said, It has always concerned me to read articles about Christians uh, who live statistically identical lives as pagans. 
It is easy to judge people behind the safety of a screen, but when I look at my own life, what I do with my own sexuality, money, and power, I have to face the reality that my life looks more like the pagans than I would like to admit. He's saying, I look more like the pagan world than I'd like to admit. If you really look at my life, sometimes I wonder if I'm, ever, if I'm actually that different. Here's the question Peter's going to ask this morning. How can we be countercultural then? How do we become a counterculture? If it's so easy to blend in, if it's so easy to assimilate, how do we not assimilate? How do we resist assimilation? And the answer that Peter's going to give in this passage is if we're not going to assimilate, we've got to be extremely intentional. Blending in is so easy, it happens automatically, you're not even thinking about it. If you're not going to blend in, you've got to be intentional about it. You've got to think about the way you live and you've got to be direct and purposeful and intentional about how you live your life. And in this passage, if you want a roadmap, what Peter's going to do is in verses uh, one through six, he's going to say, if you're not going to assimilate, you've got to not do some things. You've got to say no to a set of practices. And then in verses seven through 11, he's going to say it's not just negative, it's positive too. If you're going to resist assimilation, if you're going to be countercultural, there are things you need to do in a positive direction. And so uh, we're going to first look at what we must not do, and then we're going to look at what we must do if we're going to resist assimilation. So let's jump into it. <clears throat> this is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. What do we not do? He says, therefore... Uh, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. The first thing we must not do intentionally if we're, if we're going to resist assimilation is we must not tolerate sinful behavior. Now, last week, we talked about how we need to be tolerant, that uh, with people that disagree with you, with non-believers, we argue with them, but we do so in a way that's tolerant. We respect uh, non-believers. We, we treat them gently. But if, here's Peter gives us permission to be intolerant. He says, okay, there's actually one area where you can be intolerant. You should be intolerant in regards to your own sin. Notice he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So he says the same attitude that Jesus had about sin. I want you to have that same attitude. So what attitude did Jesus have towards sin? Well, he, he crucified sin on the cross. He battled against sin in his death and resurrection. He suffered on behalf of sin to get rid of it. And he says, I want you to have that same attitude towards sinful behavior. I want you to arm yourselves, he said. Now notice the battle language there. Don't sit, uh, treat sin gently, but I want you to arm yourselves for battle. And just the way Jesus did not tolerate sin by dying for it on the cross, you must not tolerate sinful behavior in your own lives. And he gives us a list of things here. He mentions... Uh, uh, carousing and orgies and uh, detestable idolatry and debauchery and lust and drunkenness. Uh, these were the behaviors in their, their situation. But what are the behaviors in our world? There are things that our culture tolerates. Uh, there are behaviors that our culture says, hey, that's fine, that's normal, it applauds certain behaviors. He says, if you're not going to assimilate, you've got to be intolerant about those things. 
Don't let them exist in your own life. And if that's true, we've got to be serious about sin. Jesus put it this way. He said, if your right hand or if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus here is talking about having a militant attitude against sin. View sin as like gangrene, like cancer. And if it gets into one of your limbs, you cut it off. You, you are serious about it. You are not going to let that live in your life. This is the way we must treat sin. We can't tolerate it. What we too often do is we accommodate sin. And uh, accommodate, that's like a hospitality word. It means to give lodging, you know, accommodation. You accommodate somebody, you, you let sin uh, live in your life, you give it lodging, you, you make provision for sin. Peter says, you must not make any space in your life for this stuff, no matter how acceptable, acceptable it is in the culture. You must not accommodate it. You must never normalize sin. No, how no, no matter how normal stealing or the abuse of power or racism is out there, it should never be normal in your own life, not in here. We must never rationalize sin as a virtue. You know, we're so good at this. We say, you know, I, I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not a drunk. I'm just sociable. I'm not gossiping. I'm just, I'm just really concerned. And so we rationalize it and we kind of let sin live in our lives. And Peter says, if you are going to be a counterculture, if you're going to resist assimilation and be different, you need to say no in a very serious way to sinful behavior. Here's another thing we need to not do. He says, if you're going to be a counterculture, you must not waste any more of your time. So notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join with them in their recklessness and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So notice what Peter says here. He, he makes this list of all these sinful, sinful behaviors, and he says, listen, you have spent enough time on that stuff. You see, as an exile, you view sin not, not just as an offense against God, but as a royal waste of your time. Our time is short. Peter will talk about how the end of all things is at hand. And what he's talking about is we believe that the end of history is coming. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Our time is tick, 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 ticking away. Our precious time is limited. And so he says, be careful that you don't waste any more of your time on any of that stuff. Don't let it exist. Live on purpose. Live as someone whose days are ticking down. And do not waste any more of your time on that stuff. And so Peter says, uh, even though the pagans may view it as, hey, this is something that we're spending our life on, he says, you must not make any room in your life for that sort of thing. Never look back. You know, it's funny, uh, sometimes you hear testimonies, someone will get, get up and share about their BC days or 
before Christ's days, before they were converted, and they'll kind of glorify their life before becoming a Christian. Uh, you know, instead of a testimony, it often turns into a bragamony, where they're glorifying their life and, and uh, kind of reliving their glory days and, and kind of fantasizing about what things used to be like. Peter says, don't do that. Enough is enough. Shut that chapter in your life. Close that door. It is over. You don't have time to deal with that stuff anymore. Live your life on purpose. Move forward. Jesus Christ is going to come back. So don't waste your time. And then another attitude he says is he, he says, you must not give in to the pressure. So notice in verse 5, or verse 4, he says, uh, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living. Talking about pagans viewing the Christians and the way they say no to certain lifestyles. And he says, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, that even those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So he, Peter says, I want you to be ready for pressure. When you say no to sin and you say, I'm not going to waste any more time on that, he says, be prepared to face opposition. The culture is not going to applaud you when you live a countercultural life. You will experience immense pressure if you take sin seriously. You may f face pressure from uh, individuals in your life. There are people that are invested in you staying the same. They want you to stay the same because they've gotten used to you living like that and they will resist any attempt that you make to change. You will experience enormous pressure if you decide to follow Jesus. And Peter says you must resist that pressure. Uh, you might experience pressure from the culture. Anytime you swim upstream, the, the, the culture is gonna push back. Uh, anytime you say, you know, I will, I will not look at pornography. I will not engage in uh, spending and c consuming my life away. I am not going to abuse power. Anytime you do that, you're going to face pushback. You guys may remember poor Jimmy Carter, you know, and he was interviewed by a magazine, and he admitted that he struggled with lust. And the culture had a field day just making fun of him and mocking him for that. Uh, Saturday Night Live did skits about it and just kind of viewed him as regressive and embarrassing because he dared to admit that he thought sex, that lust and, and illicit sexuality was a problem. Uh, you will get pushback from uh, marketing and, and the uh, advertising industry if you say no to sin. Uh, one commentator estimates that we see more advertisements in a single year of our lives than someone uh, 50 years ago saw in an entire lifetime. And so we are bombarded with messages and imaging that is pushing us to assimilate, coercing us to just kind of adopt the way that everybody else is living. Um, advertising agencies, they want you to consume. They want you to, uh, you know, follow the way of the world. And we must resist that. Uh, I like to watch sports on TV, and um, a, a lot of times uh, these, ad these advertisements will come up when I'm watching, and I'm kind of embarrassed because all my kids are sitting there. My boys are watching this, and there's this one uh, commercial for a Michelob Ultra. Some of you may have seen it, 
And uh, in this commercial, it's this uh, a group of young, beautiful people with beautiful bodies, and they are they're on this beautiful beach somewhere down in Mexico, and the sun is shining, and the water's like this aqua blue, and there's beautiful waves breaking over the reef, and they're in front of this beautiful house. And uh, someone picks up a, a Michelob Ultra and they, and they snap it open. And then a woman's voice whispers, beer in its organic form. Some of you guys heard that one before. And whenever I watch the commercial, I just think like, I need the narrative, you know, the, it's, it's just defining the good life for me. And I'm saying, I need that. What am I doing in Batesville, Arkansas? I need to find a beach somewhere. Come on, I want that. And, and, and so there's this narrative that's, that we're being fed. And if you're going to go against the culture, you've got to resist the narrative. You must learn to be weird. You must learn to stand out. You must learn to resist the pressure. You must learn to say no. Can you dig your heels in? When everybody else is, is, is engaging in a certain activity, can you say no? Well, Peter goes on, and he's given us the negative behaviors to avoid, but now he's going to switch gears in verse 7 through 11, and he's going to tell us to engage in some practices. In other words, Peter is saying, if you're going to be countercultural, it's not enough to just say no. It's not enough just to be against certain things. And Christians are always known for what we're against and, and what we don't like in the culture and what we're going to say no in in the culture. But he says, that's not enough. You've got to be for some things. Your engagement must not just be negative, but positive. You need to learn not just to say no, but you need to learn how to say yes. And so what do we say yes to? And verse Peter goes, P- Peter goes on in verse 7 and describes <clears throat> the way he wants us to live. He says, now, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've been given to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should... Uh, speaks the words of God, uh, or speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength which God provides. And so the first thing Peter tells us to do here is he says, I want you to be clear-minded and self-controlled. I want you to have a sober mind. He says, if you're going to go against the culture, first you've got to clear your mind. You must not be intoxicated. You must not be distracted. You've got to be with it. You've got to be present. And you've got to have a sober, clear mind. You need to know what's going on. You need to pay attention to your life in the world. Otherwise, you're going to get sucked in. You must not be intoxicated by alcohol. Some of us have an alcohol problem. You know, you get off work and it's, you hit the bottle and you're, you're just kind of not there for the rest of the evening. And, and Peter says, no, you've got to be with it. You can't live the Christian life while being intoxicated. Some of us are intoxicated by ideologies and political parties and we're just so focused on that and so intoxicated in that realm that you, that you forget what's really important. And Peter says, wake up. 
You've got to have a sober mind. You've got to be thinking clearly. If you're ever going to go a different way, you've got to be with it and present. Some of us are intoxicated by uh, social media and all the technology that we're involved in. You know, you've got Netflix and your iPhone and your Facebook account and your Instagram and Twitter, and the loop is just always going. And your mind is just always buzzing. And you're always distracted. Peter says you've got to have a clear, sober mind. You've got to be paying attention. Uh, Linda Stone, who's a a Microsoft researcher, she coined this term, continuous partial attention. She said our, our social media and our technology in the digital age, she says we're just always partially paying attention. We're always distracted, which means we're never really present anywhere. And she goes on to say, uh, this leads to increased stress and decreased ability to focus and concentrate on the present moment, prohibiting reflection, contemplation, and thoughtful decision-making. And Peter says, if you are going to live a way that's countercultural, he says, you've got to unplug, you've got to put your phone down, you've got to make space in your calendar for deep thinking. You need to pencil into your schedule times of prayer. You need to make enough space in your, in your mind in order to think deeply and to meditate on the scripture and on your life and on the world. Do you remember Peter uh, at a very critical moment in his life was not paying attention? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, Jesus was about to be arrested and go to the cross. And he tells his disciples, pay attention. I want you to be alert and aware and I want you to pray because it's a critical moment. And Jesus goes away and and he leaves. And when he comes back, what is Peter and the rest of the disciples doing? They're asleep. And Jesus says, wake up. It's a critical time. And Peter would say the same thing. Wake up. We're living in a critical moment. And you need to be alert if you're ever going to step away from the culture and go a different way. So Peter says, I want you to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. And then he goes on in verse 8. Here's another positive thing that you should do. He says, above all, I want you to love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter says, the second thing I want you to to practice and be engaged in is in small acts of brotherly love and kindness. Now, Peter's been talking about this. He says, above all, I want you to do this. Uh, If you've been tracking with us at all, you know that Peter's been talking about this over and over again. Love is just not another thing that Christians are supposed to do. It is the one thing that sets us apart from the unbelieving world around us. And Peter says, you need to be absolutely committed to love. Because all men will know that you are my disciples, not by your bumper stickers or by your arguments, but by your love for one another. I want you to be committed to brotherly love, he says, above all. And brotherly love, he says, is, this is not a huge deal. Brotherly love is just made up of small acts that accumulate over a lifetime that end up making a big difference. He says, I want you to be committed to kindness. I love what the, uh, the great uh, theologian uh, Gandalf said in The Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> he said, I have found that it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk 
that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Small acts of kindness and love end up making a huge difference when it comes to resisting assimilation. And have you, have you ever noticed, you know, Paul, Peter goes on here and he says, uh, love will cover a multitude of sins. And when he says that, he's not just saying that love forgives a lot of things, although that's true. He's saying that a small act of love goes a long way. A small act of love can repair an entire relationship. A small act of love can cover a multitude of little offenses. And it can make all the difference in the world. I saw this the other day with my, um, with my neighbor. We, we, we've got a neighbor that we don't have a great relationship with. And uh, I think mostly it's because it's, it's hard to live next to the Swanson family, you know? Uh, our, our boys are just wild and they're loud in the backyard and, you know, our, the balls get kicked on people's yards and, and the kids are making fires in the backyard. I mean, it's just not easy to live next to us and we've committed probably a multitude of offenses with our neighbor. But there was one day we were out on a walk with our family and we walked by our neighbor and, and our neighbor was out there you know, manicuring the lawn and they said, hey, how are you doing? And we said, oh, we're doing fine. How are you doing? And our neighbor opened up and she said, you know, my sister just died. Or no, no, she, she, he, she said, my brother just died. And we're like, oh, that's terrible. And she said, yeah, it's just hard because it's during COVID and, you know, we couldn't go see him in the hospital and the funeral's gonna be different and it's just gonna be really hard. And so uh, we felt so bad for her and we, we walked away and, and we did this little thing that was not, it wasn't a heroic act. Any of you guys would have done it. It wasn't a big deal, but we decided to buy our neighbors uh, a bouquet of flowers with a card in it. And we put it on their porch. And uh, again, it wasn't a big deal. It was just kind of this little thing. But it made a huge difference with our neighbors. Our relationship completely changed after that. And uh, since that time, they've got a little garden. They've been bringing us, you know, vegetables, tomatoes and lettuce and okra and things like that. And, and it's almost like this, this little tiny act of love was a powerful force that changed everything in our relationship. And Peter says, you've got to be committed to love because love covers a multitude of sins. A little act of love makes all the difference in a marriage. A little act of love makes all the difference in a family it makes all the difference in a neighborhood and a community. So Peter goes on. You need to be committed to uh, brotherly love. And then he says in verse 10, each one of you should, <clears throat> or yeah, verse nine, I'm sorry. Uh, you should offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So the next thing he tells us to do is offer hospitality. Uh, hospitality is, um, it's the Greek word uh, xenophilia. Can we all say xenophilia? Xenophilia, it sounds a lot like xenophobia. Xenophobia is fear of the stranger, and xenophilia is welcoming the stranger. Peter says, here's another countercultural practice. I want you to be committed to hospitality, creating space in your life for the stranger. So you must never accommodate sin, make room for sin in your life. You must never make space for sin but you must always make space for the stranger. You must be committed to hospitality. 
Because radically ordinary hospitality, says Rosaria Butterfield, is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. So in a culture that is just shutting its doors and saying, if you're not like me, I don't want you in your life. If you don't agree with me, I don't want you to to come near me. I will not welcome you unless you are like me. In a culture like that, when Christians open their door and open their home and open their table to strangers, it is radically countercultural. It is a powerful act that gives us a glimpse of the new society that Jesus is creating. Uh, Henry Nowen put it this way. He said, Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people. Anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion. In this environment, Christians must offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become fellow human beings. He's saying you must be different by opening up your home. And again, hospitality is incredibly powerful. When we, I remember when we first uh, rolled into Batesville, this was eight years ago, uh, the one thing I remember about folks in this church was the incredible hospitality that they showed us. So we, we had a moving van that didn't show up until a month after we got here. And so uh, all of my books, uh, a lot of my clothing, all of our furniture was still in this truck. We had nowhere really to, to, to make a home. And so people in this church opened their home to us. So we, uh, Christian and Megan Baxter uh, literally gave us their house. They moved out of their house into their mom's basement and let us live in their home for, for seven days. And, uh, you know, it was, it was incredible. And um, it was a beautiful display of hospitality. Then after that, the McLeans uh, opened their home. They, they may remember this. Uh, we didn't know when the moving van was going to get there. So they said, well, how long are you going to be staying in our house? And we just said, we don't know. Indefinitely. But they invited us in and they were making us meals and we were staying in their upper room bedroom. And we've got a little, uh, it's a picture of little Luke when he was like two years old, I think it was. And this thing shows up on my Facebook feed over and over again. And it's little Luke sitting in their dog's cage. He just, he got comfortable, you know, we were comfortable in their house. And it was a beautiful display of hospitality. And when you do that for somebody, here's the message that it sends. When you open your home like that, it sends the message, we want you here. We want you here. You are welcome here. And what would it look like if, if Christians in the church open their doors and open their homes to people that don't believe like they do? He says, show hospitality without grumbling because we often grumble. We, we don't want people who are unlike us in our homes. And Peter says, open your home, open your life to strangers and people that disagree with you. Because that will make you a counterculture. And then Peter goes on. This is the final thing that he says. He says, if anyone speaks, I'm sorry, verse 10, he says, each one of you should use whatever gift you've received uh, to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. He says, finally, I want you to use your gifts. Whatever God has given you, I want you to use that to serve other people. 
instead of taking what God has given you and leveraging it for your own benefit, instead of using all your time and talents and energy to get yourself ahead in this world, here's something countercultural. Leverage your gifts and your time and your money in order to serve somebody else. Peter mentions two things here. Uh, he mentions word gifts and deed gifts. And so he says, if you're somebody who has the gift of talking, some of you have the gift of talking, uh, you know, he says, teach in Sunday school. Uh, lead, lead a home group Bible study. Share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know it. Use your ability to speak to serve other people. For those of you who have the ability to make delicious food, here's an idea. Spend a Saturday making a meal and serving it at our Father's table. If you have time to serve, why don't you serve on the welcome uh, committee or uh, make coffee in the morning before Sunday school or, or be a, someone who's on the security team team at church, Peter is saying, leverage what you've been given in order to serve other people. Because service is rare in this world. And when we humble ourselves and use our time, talents, and energy for the sake of others, that looks incredibly different. And so Peter has given us some things not to do, some things to do, some things to say no to, some things to say yes to, some things to resist, and some things to engage in. I want to end by just asking you to reflect on your own life. What in your life do you need to stop doing this week? What do you need to stop doing? What have you wasted enough time on? What do you need to shut the door on and say, you know, that chapter of my life is over. I will not do that anymore. I will not waste any more time. I am gonna resist the pressure to do this thing because it is just not getting me anywhere. What do you need to say no to this week? And then ask the question, what do I need to do? Uh, look at these practices, maybe take them home and just kind of reflect on your own life and your own family. What practices do I need to, to engage in? What do I need to be for? What do I need to be known for? What do I want to characterize my life? Do I need to show hospitality? Do I need to use my gifts to serve? Do I, do I need to be creative about how I could uh, show small acts of kindness and love to others? Do I need to create space in my life to reflect and to pray and to spend time with God? Because when we are intentional about the way we live, when we say, I will not do this, I will not do this anymore, and I will do this, when we start to reflect on what we're doing, then we could change the way we are living and we could move in a different direction. Now, Peter uh, ends the passage here um, with Jesus Christ. Actually, he begins the passage with Jesus. I love that he begins uh, chapter four with the word therefore. He says therefore, and therefore is a beautiful word because he builds everything that he's saying on, on this, what came before and what did come before. Well, he's been talking about the death of Jesus. He's been talking about how Jesus Christ conquered sin on our behalf, how he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead for us opening the door for us, uh, enabling us and empowering us to live a life that's different. 
Christianity is not just about turning over a new leaf, about trying harder to be a different person. It is drawing on the power which God supplies through the death and resurrection of Jesus to live differently. As we wake up on Monday morning, know this, Jesus Christ has made it possible for you to live a different life. And he opens his arms and he invites you to follow him into the way of transformation and the way where we resist assimilation. And let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passage that you've given us um, about uh, resisting this uh, temptation to assimilate into our culture. And Father, I pray um, for Fellowship Bible Church as a community. And I ask God that you would enable us to be a countercultural community. I pray that the way that we relate to sex, money, and power, uh, the way that we behave, the practices that we engage in, would be uh, an alternative society to the world around us. God, I pray that you'd make us different. And Lord, I pray that you'd give each one of us eyes to see. Uh, give us uh, the ability to reflect deeply on our lives. And I pray, God, that as we consider our steps and um, think about the way we live, that you would enable us, Lord, day by day and week by week to become an, a countercultural community. Uh, we pray that you do this by the power of Jesus. 